First John chapter 2, if you will. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And that's all for today. But that's a, quite a lot as we look into probably some of the most reassuring passages in all of Scripture. That of Jesus as our advocate. Uh, I come across a, the book gentle and lowly right at the front end of my sabbatical it was suggested to me as i have said before by mark bearden whom some of you may remember came roughly three years ago or so to preach here and um was with uh i forget the name of the organization heart cry ministry for a long time uh and uh it was in what he would do is to try to position help churches get positioned for revival, not to bring it, but to try to get churches in a position to begin thinking that way. And that's what, when Mark was saved, that's what his ministry was. Well, Mark has cancer now, and he has colon cancer specifically. And uh, he had had some sections of it removed, had a hard time, went through chemo, radiation, all of it. I contacted him, had talked to him a long time, and in the course of that conversation, he had recommended this book that was given to him by his daughter, and he said it was a book that just really shook him, and um, I couldn't get it out of my head, so I ordered it myself, and, uh, and that's why I had the book, was because it was recommended by Mark. I haven't heard from Mark since that time either. I know that last time I texted him, he, he couldn't talk really, so I'm not quite sure where he's at right now. It's kind of hard to get in touch with him. But uh, pray for him as often as you think, because he's, he's fighting a battle all new to him. <clears throat> but the issue behind the book, Gentle and Lowly, and why it's so important, is because in it, we have a picture of Jesus who is approachable. We have a picture of God who is approachable. One not brought down to our level, per se, but one whom understands and sympathizes with us in our condition. An accompanying book that I had picked up by way of a Paul Washer sermon was from Douglas McMillan, who um, wrote a book about the, the humanity of Jesus from the specific point of view of how Jesus lived as the perfect man walking in perfect surrender to the Holy Spirit, which is how he did his ministry. And as I keep saying over and over again, but it's a profound statement, is that every time we think about Jesus as our example, we will often qualify that with, yes, but he was God. As if though we could dismiss his struggles, or we could dismiss to that which he he demonstrated to the fact that he was God, so he had a leg up on us. But that's not what the Scripture bore out. Yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And what we saw demonstrated, or what we see demonstrated in the life of Jesus on this earth, was that of a perfectly surrendered man to the leading of the Holy Spirit as he sought to do the Father's will. Douglas McMillan wrote this very, very well. He said, Our representative fulfilled all righteousness for us. 
He goes to the place of testing and remains in it, self-consciously and deliberately as man. As our representative, he demonstrates not what absolute Godhead can achieve, not what omniscience or omnipotence can achieve, even when found in human nature. That would have been Jesus because all of that dwelt in Jesus. Here's the point. He is demonstrating what the Word of God and the Spirit of God can achieve for man. And that's, it's really important you guys get that. So try not to get lost under maybe what some of you may perceive as academia. Understand that Jesus demonstrated what the Word of God and the Spirit of God can achieve for man. That's what He demonstrated. Now, just in case you missed it, and I get so excited and impassioned when I talk about this. It can be a rotten week for me, and I get right here, and all of a sudden it's like I'm alive. But he is demonstrating what the Word of God, I have that, it's right here, okay? And the Spirit of God, he's right here too. Jesus had those things, and he demonstrated to me what God can do and achieve through these, these things in my life. So, while I have a perfect Savior, and while He was fully God, what I read about in Scripture in the New Testament concerning Him in His first advent, and the way He lived, and that which He struggled, and all of those things, I see my elder brother in the sense of, in my humanity, demonstrating for me a reason for why I should keep going forward. Jesus was only tempted in the realm of, of, of activating or relying on his omnipotence as God, which would have completely have undone his sufficiency as the perfect man in our, as our Savior. That's why the devil tempted him all the time to, well, make these stones bread. Or call down your angels. We both know you have them. Do what you do to make it easier on your humanity by using your divinity. That would have completely have annihilated and neutralized his sufficiency as our Savior. Because he would have not, at that moment, he would have stopped being human. He would have cheated, in essence, okay? So, he is demonstrating what the Word of God and the Spirit of God can achieve for man. And on this, uh, Douglas McMillan says, we must insist his mediatorial obedience. Therefore, it has to be obedience rendered in the nature of those he came to redeem. It was the obedience of a man, God's man, yes, but our man too. We have an all-sufficient Savior because He showed us how to live. And that's, that's the beauty of how what Douglas McMillan writes is, uh, is really literally what the book Gentle and Lowly is about, fleshing all those things out. 
we either find ourselves being hopelessly so pitifully sinful that God cannot even begin to tolerate us any longer or that Jesus is somehow disgusted and so disappointed in us that he's just going to give us the boot, okay? Because we say, there's no way I can attain to that, right? Or we're going to go to the other extreme and say, he understands it so well that he's so much love that he just lets me be who I want to be. Both of those things are equally insidious and wrong. When we understand the true heart of God and who he is for us, We have not only reason to live, we walk on, as the Bible refers to them, as high hills. You know where it says that he gives us feet like deer's feet? It's, it's, it, these are, this is what he's, you ever seen the pictures of rams like mountain goats on the side of mountains? And on sometimes in some of these pictures, they've been on the side of dams, uh, water dams, just, and you're thinking, how are they perched up there? The ledges couldn't be more than three quarters of an inch sometimes, and they're just up there because there's a blade of grass. Well, number one, it's how God made them because it's in the feet, see? Their strength is in their feet. I got goats, okay? And I don't know if they're, I don't know if their hooves are, how they're different than a I don't know anything about that, but what I know is this, they can stand on, on things, okay, lots of things they shouldn't stand on, but that God made them to be able to rise above and get into the loftiest of heights by simply fashioning their feet to hang on to the little bit of hope that may be there, and so when the Bible says that he gives us feet like deer's feet, it means that You may be drowning in things, but God's going to provide you with enough to get up. And that's what that means. Well, why would he do that? Because we have a Savior that made it possible for us to live in victory. And we may get beat down and bludgeoned on the floor. Think of all the Rocky movies. It's always the same. Okay, he comes out there, and he's got a lot of heart, and they beat him to smithereens, and he's like, and then, he, and, then he, and then he pulls up, you know, some kind of deep visceral response, and he comes just pounding away, and he wins at the end. And you're like, it took you 15 rounds to finally do that. Whatever, he won. And so, but, but God gives us the victory, and I want you to, I just put it this way, God has given you the victory. It, it's, it's given. Oh, by the way, I know that all of us are in our own ways dealing with the absolute chaos in our nation right now, right? And words can't convey how bizarre, confusing, disappointing, sometimes scary, all of that is. But you know what? The devil can scream and yell and pitch a fit and threaten and shake the trees. But he's still little more in effect than the Wizard of Oz was behind his sheet. And and I am saying that very respectfully here, understanding my foe. But he can only do what God permits him to do. He has no more power 
than God allows him to have. He's on a leash. He can scream at you, condemn you, scare you, frighten you, make you feel guilty. And He can make things seem so black and so dark. But He's the wizard behind the sheet. That's why the Bible says in one of the books in the Concordance that the whole world will see Him as He is and go, and and they will say, is this the one that kept the earth in such trouble? Is this, is this the one that did it? You've, have you read that? It's in there. Sharon, you go find it, okay? I, I, it's in the Old Testament. <laughs> so I just know it's somewhere over there. Jesus is our victory. One of the things that the enemy may try to do to you is to make you feel like all you do is fail. And here's the first thing you should do is understand that, yes, you fail. It's not all you do, but, you know, we're pretty consistent in it. But there's a big ace in the hole here. The trump card, if you will. The nuclear option that's happened. For all my failings, I've got one who never failed me. And he dealt a death blow to my enemy. And now all of this stuff, this rattling, this chaos, this, this debris field that we see, it's just the end game. It's just playing out now. Sometimes I hear the hunters talk about how they shot the elk from usually it's at least five miles away with iron sights, okay, in the snow, okay, and as they were walking uphill. And the animal went down. Now, the only true part is what I'm about to say now. And, uh, <laughs> but they shot, they shot it, you know, and it ran on. It went on. They, it, they hit it right where they needed to hit it, but it ran on. Typically, they seem to always go on a little bit because they have to go find them. That's when you get into the really tall tales. Okay, they went through Narnia and they ended up in Modor and finally, you know, Gandalf came and said, it's here. And, but no, <laughs> sorry, I'm having a hard time. But the point is, the bullet hit the target. The target's dead. It just hasn't, it hasn't realized it yet. That's the enemy we have too. I mean, Jesus took the blow. He, he, he gave him a deadly blow. And this is just the death throes. Don't forget that. Because Jesus is our victory in that. So now to the verse. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, which in the Greek is really, really loving because it's basically my dear little ones is what he's saying. Okay, technia and all. My little children. These things I write to you. What things? Everything that chapter 1 said, okay, that you may not sin. 
Because John knows, as well as we do here that know Christ, that sin is the problem. Sin is. Would you agree? JT, would you agree with that? You concur. Okay, I concur too. So sin, then, is what messes us up. And we make it our duty every day not to sin. We, we set out to not sin. Because when you're in Jesus, you don't want to. Because it's literally like putting a wrench down in a transmission of gears. You just don't do that. But it is going to happen. Because we're people. We're human, frail beings. So, he says, and if anyone sins, not as if like, oh, what? It happened? Well, there's a countermeasure for that. No, but when it does happen, we have an advocate. There's our first big word, an advocate. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, right? And he himself is, another word here, propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world, meaning anyone that comes to him in faith that believes the gospel. What he's saying here is, in the tense and nature of the language, is those who believe the gospel have an advocate that has propitiated God's wrath. Two huge things in your life. Arno, what a name, Gebelin, another theologian, writing about the two verses there in 1 John, said, one might conclude inasmuch as belief in the eradication of the old nature and sinless perfection is a delusion that the child of God must sin because there was a because some people read this and say see we're just going to sin there's there's nothing can be done about it we're just sinful people well and at the same time there's another camp that teaches what was known as sinless perfectionism typically it's a wesleyan thing okay and well there's a lot of history there but the idea is, is that you are, when you're saved, you can reach a point of instant sanctification where you no longer sin none, like zero. And the problem is, according to Scripture, they're every one of them committing a lie because they're lying because anyone says they don't sin is a liar. So it, it's not possible, but Arno, Arno, Brother Arno, he writes, but while sin is within... And a sinless perfection is beyond our reach. It does not mean that the believer should continue in sin. He had written these things that they may not sin, but if any man sin, a, a gracious provision has been made. Don't forget that. You don't go assume on that. You don't say, I can do whatever I want because Jesus is right there, ready to cover it all. You don't understand grace. You don't understand that Savior like that. Because you are, pres oh, you just don't want to... God takes his name very seriously. We can't forget that, right? So, but if any man has a sin, a sin, we have a provision. Let it be noticed that the application, as it is often done to the sinner who is outside, who knows not Christ at all, is totally wrong. In other words, you can't have, lost people can't claim this. 
If you don't know Jesus and you're listening to me today and you're wondering why is he so jerky and movie like that, it's because I'm trying to get you to see something. The wonder of Jesus, the magnificence of his ability to save lost sinful people is for lost sinful people who've repented and believe in the magnificent Savior. You can't have him as Savior and still have your sin. He will do you no good. In fact, he will not be your advocate. He will be your judge. Creepy, man. So for the saved, for the contrite, for the ones who are saying, I'm done, I'm exhausted, look at the mess I've made, Jesus says, come on, bring it in. In fact, when we read in the Gentle and Lowly book, we'll understand as we read Scripture, boy, Brother Ortland, I don't know, that must have been some kind of reckoning that God moved on him to write a book like that. But Jesus is attracted, drawn to people like that. He's drawn to the down and out. He's drawn to the, to the spiritually exhausted, ready to give up. He's, he's drawn to the humble. Oh, he can't resist the humble. He's drawn to the one that says, I want to not be in charge anymore. He's drawn to the one that says, I don't know what to do. That's who Jesus pursues. So, if you're opposite all those things, Jesus is uh, not going to be much comfort to you. In fact, it's quite opposite. If any true child of God sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Not God, it is the matter of the family, Jesus Christ the righteous. We, we have an advocate that represents us before the throne, which is an amazing thing. So I want to talk about these two words, advocate and propitiation, if you will. Humor me while I share a few hard-to-say words, because I don't do it to try to say, wow, that's what you get when you go to seminary, because you can read this yourself. Okay, it's kind of overrated. But the word for advocate here in 1 John is the same word used elsewhere when Jesus is referring to the parakletos, the comforter, the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Okay? So advocate here though, John is using it to, to, in, its, in its very technical sense first. That's what he's trying to highlight first. Typically when we talk about the paraclete, we're referring to him as the comforter. I've sinned. I want to be comforted. Because if, I'll tell you what, if, if you've been born again, if I heard one preacher, this on Sermon Audio, I, I just have to share this. I don't know where he is from. Back south. I'm going to say North Carolina, South Carolina, or somewhere that's even more than that. But he'd say, when you've been born again, he'd say it all the time, born again, B-O-R-N-D, born again, okay? It's like some people's wash. There's no R in wash, okay? But he said, when you're born again, and he's a good preacher too. He's just funny that he said that. But when, when, you, when you've been born again and you sin and you grieve the Spirit, you have conviction. That's what we call conviction, right? That's one of the, that's one of the surest ways you know you're a child of God, when you have conviction. 
And boy, sometimes that conviction is so great, so unsettling, so... I, would, I think I would almost rather be beaten physically than to go through that. I, I always think that, you know how they used to say, and Elvis has left the building, right? I always think, and Jesus has left the building. <laughs> and I know there's a lot of theological problems with that, but from a practical human point of view in the mind of Mickey, it's simply that I have grieved the Holy Spirit bad enough that I feel alone. And what that is, is that is, a, that is a relational way of saying to me, this is bad and must be dealt with, and this is how much I feel about it, the Lord is saying. I hate it. I mean, I would just rather melt and turn into a pool of ooze on the floor. In which case, God comes along and scrapes it up and begins to fashion it back. Parakletos is the comfort we get when we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But the other part that John's alluding to here is something else inside the word. So first, it's a compound Greek word, para, which means to the side of. So if I had, hey, Brian, come and para by me, he would come to the side of me, right? But then kaleo means to summon or to advocate, so I guess you can see how they come together. Paracleo, parakletos. He comes alongside of us to advocate for us. That's the technical use of the word. So meaning, one who is called to another side to aid him as an advocate in a court of justice. Whose court? God's court. The, the court. That's the one. A person who acts as a spokesperson or representative of someone else's policy, purpose, or cause, especially before a judge in a court of law. That's what Jesus does for us. So how much comfort does an advocate bring to a guilty criminal in a court? A lot Because you have someone that can speak the court's language, someone that can advocate for you, and I got to tell you, there's a lot of comfort if you've ever been where you've needed an attorney, a good one, okay, and and where you've been maybe something wrong is coming against you, and you know how they'll throw legalese at you, and you're able to have someone that's your advocate Talking back in that language, bringing truth to bear and just snuffing them out. That is a great comfort. Plus, and this just gets really rich after this, okay, is that Jesus says, not only am I the advocate, I'm the Savior. You see, my blood is all over this one, devil. You can't touch him or her. They're mine. And this let me tell you how good they are. They got me in them. All over them. It's my blood that you're threatening. It's my righteousness that you're trying to condemn. I have justified them. They are sinless. Well, what, what do you say to that? 
what do you do? I, I have a whole bunch. I don't have time because I'd never have time. But Romans 8 talks all about it. You should look it up. Okay, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's something else too, Christian. Jesus was and Jesus is. Don't ever speak of Jesus as a past tense. He is now. He lives now. It used to be a hymn. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me. Hey, that's the Andy song. Andy, oh no, it's not. I messed it up. But it sounds a lot like it. Sometimes they all just, but we have that kind of Savior that's able to save to the uttermost. The uttermost, what's, how big is the uttermost? It's uttermost, right? Okay, moving on. Job wished, Job, I thought about Job. He wished he would have had an advocate. Now listen to this out of, the, out of Job chapter 9, verse 32 through 35 out of the NLT. This is so good. I just, God is not, that's what Job said, God is not a mortal like me. Yep, he's not. So I cannot argue with him. Good point. Or take him to trial. Mm-mm. If only, if only, Job writes, there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. And you're like, Job, you need Jesus, man. That's what you're wanting to say, but you're in the wrong covenant. Okay, <laughs> you got to get upgraded. But if only there was someone who could bring us together, the mediator could make God stop beating me. And I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do that in my own strength. And what Job is saying is, what do I do? But I read that and go, Jesus! Because you have Jesus, you can. You can stand there all day long because you have the Lord right there with you with his arm around your shoulders and he's mine. She's mine. I read Job right there. I've never, I've read through Job a lot and I've never seen it like that before. Can you see kind of what Job is saying? There's no, I'm alone before his holiness. I'm alone. There's no one to speak for me and I'm terrified out of my head. So, 1 Timothy 2.5 then. This is refreshing. I would want to say, Job, listen, look, look ahead. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, is it any wonder that it says the man Christ Jesus? Can we just stop there for a second and hang out? How many of you have ever said or thought, well, I failed like this, and, and you know, but I read about Jesus, but he was God. How many of you ever said that? But he's God, of course he never, I mean, how many of you ever thought that way? Be honest. Really? I guess we're on the short bus, because we're just, you know, we're not, we're not saying, okay, there's not a single one of you that has never put Jesus outside of his flesh to be able to have the strength to do what he did. All of us cheat him out of his humanity all the time. But the advocate, the mediator, is the man Christ Jesus. Living in full submission, 
full surrender and full supply of the Spirit of God to the will of the Father. That's our mediator. That's our Savior. Oh, we cannot forget, yes, He's fully God too. Never not saying that. But what He demonstrated was what it is to live as a human in full dependence upon the Father. Does that not change things for you a little? Does that not give you a little more encouragement? Hmm. Propitiation then. This is, this is a good word. <clears throat> halosmos. That's how you say that one in case you're like, well, I learned halosmos today. What does it mean? I have no idea. But halosmos is related in stem and meaning to the word halaros. Now, what do you think we have that's close to that word. Hilarious. You're thinking, what? When it comes to propitiation, say what? It's a serious matter. You shouldn't be all hilarious about it. Halasmas and halaros, meaning, so halaros means glad or merry, cheerful. Propitiation, the means of appeasing wrath and gaining the goodwill of an offended person, especially with respect to sacrifices for appeasing angered deities. That's what Jesus did as our propitiation. That's what he, he got for us. Is, that's what his sacrifice accomplished, right? His halasmas. Now, hang with me. Related to these words is the word katharmas, okay? And it means purification from cultic and moral defects. Halasmas, the propitiation of God's Demons are the departed from whom demonstrations of favor are sought or whose wrath has been provoked. Katharmos and Hilasmos denote the same process which may be described as the purification of man on the one side or the propitiation of supernatural beings on the other. All that being said, for the joy that was set before him, he became for us our mediator. He made propitiation for us with joy while appeasing the wrath of God. What is that? That is beyond human scope. He did that too in the physical part as a man. But he was God too and these things just, and boy, suddenly we see just how rich God is. I'm baffled. This is my baffled face. Okay, because the more I learn about Jesus, the more struck I am with gratitude and wonder and amazement and love and thankfulness and confidence and all those other descriptors that all of this happened in who Jesus is. Does that make sense? Okay. Almost done. 
This just gets a little better on the catharmoi part. So the catharmoi may consist in the removal of physically conceived stains by washings. Now notice this with water, blood, or by rubbings with clay, or by the fumigation of rooms. And in this case, they are not true sacrifices, even though animals are slaughtered to secure their blood, because what does the Bible say? Well, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone for sin. Okay. But we also find true sacrifices and even human sacrifices in which the stains of guilt, which are now conceived less physically, are transferred to the victim and washed away by the means of it. In case of such sacrifices, we are naturally not to think in terms of feasting of gods or men. The essential thing is the offering up of the life of the blood, which is what Hebrews talks about, that Jesus did for us. It is absolutely incredible, and I do want to turn there because it's not very long. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now it says this, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the appearing of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, (laughs) all coming together right there, offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to to serve the living God. And for this reason, He is the, there it is, mediator of the new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And it just goes on and on about the blood of Christ. And that's what we see all in this one word. Jesus did it all. All of it. Which made me think, lastly, and this is the last slide, but we're, what is one chapter that captures all of it? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I'm going to read that. The forbidden chapter, if you're an Orthodox Jew. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. 
And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it, it pleased the Lord to catharmoi him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteousness, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. What we have there, his propitiation with the blood with the joy we have the advocacy as a result and this is what Jesus did for his people that's why the only way I could close this today I think is with Romans 25 and 26 out of chapter 3 whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You can take the world and all of its fluff and all its stuff and all its politics and all its supposed wealth And at best, what it's got. And it is raw, tainted, and ugly, and empty, and futile compared to the wonder of just knowing Jesus. I read this morning again about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego, actually. And how... Nebuchadnezzar had set up that colossus in the plain of Durin and said, you must bow down when you hear these things happen. You must bow down and worship this thing. And I thought about, what sounds vaguely familiar today, kind of how that's playing out. But they said, it was reported, there are Jews that will not do this, right? And they, boy, he was furious, it says. He was furious, And there they stood before this worldly big ruler. And with all the confidence in the world, they said, well, we will not serve your your statue, but we believe God can save us. But then they said, but if not, know this, we won't bow down to you. So, you know the story. He takes this brick kiln Heats it so much that he has to kill his own men to even get him close to it. Puts him in a lot of very flammable material. Okay. Tosses him in there. And then is like. And everyone else is like. "Mm, Unusual happenings. But I'm not saying anything. And he goes, did we not put three guys in there? I see four. And one of them's really shiny. 
And he's in a fire. So I can't imagine what Jesus must have looked like in that furnace, right? I mean, he's just shining. And, and I just wonder. They threw him in there, and then they're just walking around. Logic says, if I'm in a furnace, and I'm standing there, and my, bounds have, my, my, my ropes have been cut, I'm out of there, man. Phew, I'm coming out, wondering how it all happened. But no. There is no better place to be than in the very presence of God. They, they didn't want to leave. Jesus was there. They're in a fiery furnace. And the heat and the sound, probably the roar. And they're just walking. The Jesus is there. And then, and then I thought it was strange. Never, hey, you, you guys come up out of there. I'd have been saying, no, thank you. We'll stay right here. You know, because that's what Peter, James, and John wanted to stay right up there. With the mountain on, remember that? And they came out, and the stench of the smoke wasn't on their, their hair was not singed. The stench of the smoke wasn't on their clothes. Changed everything in that moment. Well, you think, what a cool story, right? But that Jesus that was in the furnace with them, he's in another furnace. He's right here. That's where he lives if you know him. He's right here. So when you go to the office tomorrow, some of you go to offices or a cube farm. Anyone here work in a cube farm? They're terrible things. Horrible deals. It's a, it's a very, it's an injustice. But Jesus is with you. He's not just next to you. He's inside you, okay? When you're in trouble because you've done something dumb, and we all do it, but you actually got caught, okay? Repent, make it right best you can, and know this, you got an advocate, a very powerful one. And he's for you. And they can scream, and they can threaten, and they can cuss and cry and moan, but God rules from heaven. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They can say all they want to say. They can create fancy websites to do it. But God rules from heaven. Don't forget that. We as believers in Jesus are kept by the power of God. Now, here's the finality to this today. Do you know him? Because if you don't know him, you would be alone in that furnace. If you, if you reject Christ, if you do not believe in what Jesus came to do, you bear the wrath of God. And it's worse than a furnace. So, receive what Jesus did for you. Believe. Repent. Turn your life over. I'm going to ask JT to come. Christian, if you're beat down so hard and all the devil does is tell you how awful you are, remember your advocate. Remember who he is. Jesus didn't cheat to get through this life and pull out his God power. He demonstrated to us how we can live. So in this moment today, if you don't know Christ, repent. Ask the Lord to forgive you and of your wickedness and your unbelief and, and receive with meekness that gospel that can save your soul. And Christian, if you're, if you're just beaten down and you're tired, tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. 
Tell it to Jesus alone. As God directs your heart, you come, you pray. Pray where you are. I'll be here if you need me. Just for a few moments. Let's let the Lord speak to us.